The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. And um, our show today is going to be focused on um, recovery amongst people who live with psychiatric disabilities. And um, I think one of the things that... Uh, one of the gifts that um, the recovery community for people that have addictive disorders has kind of brought over to the table, so to speak, of people who have uh, major mental illness is that it's a concept of recovery that you can move beyond your illness. And for for many years, people who have psychiatric illnesses and disabilities were really it was really kind of conceptualized as a downward spiral at which your life would not really get much better, and in fact, in many times it would get worse. And this whole concept of recovery from mental illness was totally foreign. Yet in um, in the treatment of addiction, the, co- the concept of recovery is what treatment's based on. The the uh, the notion that somebody can and will recover from an from an addictive disorder is part and parcel of every treatment that's provided. However, it's just been in the last maybe ten years or so that that concept has really um, trans translated over to folks with psychiatric disabilities. And um, our our show today is going to be we're going to be focusing on this. And our guest is uh, Elizabeth Carpenter Song, who's a Ph.D. She is a medical and psychological anthropologist. She studied anthropology at Dartmouth College before pursuing a graduate studies in anthropology at Case Western Reserve University. She received postdoctoral training in cultural and mental health in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School through a National Institute of Mental Health Fellowship. She is currently research. She is currently a research assistant professor in the Department of Community and Family Medicine at Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. Her work explores um, lived experiences of mental illness in the contemporary context of mental health services in the United States. Much of her research focuses on the lives of people of color and people living in poverty in the United States. She conducts research among individuals living with severe mental illness and addictions in Washington, D.C. in the context of a research and training collaboration between Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and Howard University, funded by the National Institute for Disability and Rehabilitation Research. Elizabeth, that's that's an amazing um, journey you've been on. It's been a it's been a wonderful process, and I'm very fortunate to have just amazing mentors and and colleagues along the way. It's really important to emphasize how collaborative um, this process is in the type of research that we conduct here. How did you get interested in um, working and in, in researching people with recovery from physical disabilities? Because it is a relatively new concept. It is, and it's something that, as you started the show with, um, there really has been a a paradigm shift 
in thinking about um, severe mental illness, you know, and shifting away from a view of of these types of illnesses as being kind of unvaryingly chronic and degenerating experiences, um, much more toward a view of of hopefulness and life with um, life with mental illness as something that is is meaningful and that people can can pursue and that we see empirically as well as the other very important um, piece of this is that this is not just an ideology. This is something that is lived on the ground as well um, and, and absolutely is a part of people's lived experience. And I would say that my in my own journey with this, um, you know, I was uh, had the great fortune of working with researchers at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center um, following my undergraduate education at Dartmouth and worked as a research assistant um, for a study of various vocational rehabilitative strategies for people with severe mental illness. And that really was my first exposure to uh, mental health services uh, research. I knew prior to that that I was interested in uh, medical anthropology, but that really was a watershed moment for me, having the opportunity to to engage in, in research um, that was related to mental health and that was strongly, strongly informed um, by a recovery paradigm at that point in time, and then that was picked up in the course of my graduate education um, in working with uh, Janice Jenkins at Case Western Reserve University, and she at the time had a study that was funded by the National Institutes for Mental Health that was looking in particular at the lived experiences around recovery in relation to some of the atypical antipsychotic medications, which at the time um, were still relatively new um, at that point in time. And so we, um, I was part of an effort to conduct an anthropological study of people's experiences of those medications at the time. And so it's really this idea of recovery has been a consistent thread throughout um, much of my work over the last decade. Can you share with our audience what an anthropological um, study is and how, because most of us, when we think about research, we think about uh, medication trials um, and, um, you know, mice running around um, labs. And so can, can you just explain how this is different? Sure. So absolutely, when we think about, when, when most of us think about mental health-related research or health-related research in general, we tend to think about it, as you said, as much more uh, un- quantitatively or numbers-based types of, types of research um, with typically very large sample sizes of people. And most of the analyses then um, are statistical in nature. Most of our work as anthropologists are, um, is, is qualitative in nature, and, and so the emphasis particularly within anthropological research is going out into the communities um, in which people are living their everyday lives. There's a, there's a strong emphasis on, on spending time with people in their own lived-in context whether that's in their homes, whether that's in uh, recovery-oriented housing, um, spending time in their neighborhoods. And it can seem like a very informal type of process, actually. Um, there's a, there's a, a large emphasis 
on what we term um, participant observation, which is a technique of um, spending time and shadowing people in their daily lives to understand um, both the context in which they live but also their day-to-day routines. Um, So that's a lot of what we do. We also do a lot of interviewing with people as well um, to be able to get their perspectives on particular research questions. And so there's really an emphasis on, particularly for this work, the consumer's own experience and the consumer's own perspectives on these issues. So, for example, um, if you're, you're doing research on vocational um, and different types of um, vocational supports, what you, you, would you, like, go to, like, a sheltered workshop and, um, you know, spend time with folks there? You would go someplace that does supportive employment. How would that, how, how do you compare? That's exactly right. We would, we would try to go to different contexts like that. Um, in the study that I was, that I was describing previously, um, we, we followed people who were participating in supported employment programs, um, in clubhouse type of approaches, um, to get a sense of, you know, what the difference may be across these different types of, of strategies. Um, so that's, uh, that's that's one technique that we use is to try to see people um, across different contexts as well. So when when you're looking at this, what did you find? Well, um, the work that um, in terms of uh, the work that that we're doing currently in in the Washington D.C. based work. Um, that's focusing really on the issue of housing environment as it relates to recovery among people with serious mental illnesses. And one of the reasons why we're interested in housing is that we know it's a crucial concern um, for, for many people um, with serious mental illness because of homelessness and high ho- rates of homelessness among this population. And so... Um, what we're doing now is uh, we've partnered with um, a mental health agency in Washington, D.C. Um, to, uh, to study a particular form of housing, which is termed recovery communities. And, um, and so we've been, we've been working with, working with uh, people in these communities for the last several years to try to document how living in these particular types of housing communities may impact their experience in the process of recovery. And, you know, what we're finding is, you know, just to kind of take, take a big step back, is both, you know, recovery is a very personal journey and a, and a process that requires tremendous uh, uh, personal effort and, and fortitude, while at the same time it's it's deeply social in nature, as well, and and that's something that we've I think really are able to highlight well by looking at um, community-based housing in this way to see the way in which um, recovery is being impacted by living in. Um, living in close proximity with other people who also have lived experience of, of serious mental illness, and many of them also struggles with addiction in the past as well. So um, if, if recovery, and we all know this, it's, it's a personal journey, 
when somebody is um, in recovery from mental illness, how how do are there certain markers that we look for, or is it just a, a personal perspective? You know, I think there are different definitions of it, and that's something that in doing this work, you know, we've seen that. Um, you know, different different researchers understand recovery in, in different ways. And for some, there's more an emphasis on those kinds of markers that we might look toward. I think the, the, the orientation that we take in, in this work is much more um, a, an individualized and a, and a group-based kind of process notion of recovery, that this is something that um, is is a nonlinear process. It's often incremental in nature for people, um, and and is very very um, individual in in many cases. Um, so when we looked at some of the the lived experiences, can you share with us a couple examples? Absolutely. So one of the things that you know we see. Uh, within uh, people who are living in these recovery communities, and just to kind of you know, say a little bit more so that, that uh, the audience has an idea of, of the types of settings that we're talking about, you know, these are apartment buildings or row homes in Washington, D.C., and they're owned and operated by um, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit agency. And... Um, and the idea, the, the kind of philosophy of these places is supported independent living. And what that means is that people in their day-to-day routines are, are, are independent and they're going about their days. Um, there's no on-site staff um, within these communities. There are two case managers who are assigned to uh, within, within a particular community to serve as a bridge services, but it, I do think it's important to note that there's no on-site staff there. And, and the idea is to create an intentional and safe and relationship-centered community of, of residents with shared experiences. So that, and and we, can, we can provide more details around um, the, the particulars of the recovery communities maybe later. Okay, we can do that after this commercial. Okay. Okay. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and today we are talking about recovery um, among people living with psychiatric disabilities. And our guest today is Elizabeth Carpenter Song, who is currently working as part of a multidisciplinary team of researchers at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and Howard University to explore meanings and experiences of recovery processes among people with severe mental illness in Washington, D.C. Um, welcome back. And before we went to break, you were kind of painting a picture for us of what this recovery um, housing look like? Sure. And so, um, you know, just to, to, to give everyone an idea, you know, so these are, these are apartment buildings or row homes, and, and as I was saying before, the residents live um, independently, and, you know, with the support of staff, the residents are expected to develop healthy relationships and to be active participants um, within the community. And the idea is that um, that these housing configurations um, may help to lessen the impacts not only of serious mental illness and addictions, but also many of the problems that we know um, are also an aspect of, of people's experiences in terms of poverty and trauma and homelessness, and, and within this particular context, within Washington, D.C., also um, issues around racial discrimination. And so it's a very holistic um, vision of, of recovery within these communities. So if we look at the folks who are living in these recovery um, housing units, we're looking at people who are like in the active treatment stage or relapse prevention stage or preparation or action stage of change. I would say that um, uh, many of them are in relapse prevention um, would be would be the way that I would characterize the the experience of of many of the residents in these communities. So they've been relatively s- stable in their psychiatric symptoms, and if they have um, a substance use disorder, that's been relatively stable as well. I would say that, mm-hmm. and 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 and. You know, in terms of psychiatric symptoms, you know, that's something that there may be some more variability there within the communities as far as people's stage of treatment. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've, we, we have found here at Westbridge is that that sense of community is so important, and, and there are multiple communities that we all participate in, and, 
and we try very intentionally to create a community here within our staff and our participants and and then that kind of is a model for our participants to create a community amongst each other it's more like a fraternity if you will mm-hmm. and and then there's a greater community that in which they go to school or they're working or they they go to mutual help meetings or the the community at the at the YW or the YMCA when they go to work out and and I think that whole sense of community is so important. Do you do you also study that? We do. That's something that we try to we try not only to see what's occurring within within these recovery communities themselves um, and kind of what occurs within those four walls, but we've been very interested in in understanding this issue of of integration more broadly. And we and we do ask people about their experiences in their neighborhood and being a part of, you know, we hear a lot about being part of church communities. Um, We hear about people volunteering in their communities, working in their communities, um, attending um, various, this is in Washington, D.C., so there's just a, you know, just a, 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 you know, tons of, of different opportunities to engage in different types of um, arts and, and cultural types of activities, and so we we are very interested in documenting those things as well that people are doing in their in their day to day lives, um, both within these communities as well as in the in the community in a broader sense. Um, I think there's been a lot. A lot of us are very familiar with the concept of housing first, where housing is used as an engagement strategy to help people. Uh, begin to um, may, maybe to begin to engage in treatment. So what you're talking about seems very different. It is different. It is different from um, from that model in the sense that uh, there is an expectation, particularly in relation to substance use, that residents of the community are um, have are 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 within a, a kind of relapse prevention stage of treatment as they're moving into the communities and then are expected to maintain um, sobriety and living in the communities. It's certainly the case that um, you know some some residents uh, may struggle with that and and we've been interested to to understand what happens within the communities when when someone struggles with that. Um, and there's often an, a, 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 a strong outpouring of, of support um, from fellow residents. Um, at times, though, it can be it can become difficult if you know if the problems persist because we also hear from people the idea that you know there's a, the possibility of um, of their own of their own recovery from from addiction being compromised. As well, and so it's it's a balance, I would say, um, between that outpouring of support, but then also saying, "Wow, I've I've got to be careful in terms of my own my own recovery." Um, when we think about you know recovery from substance use disorders, it's kind of um, a big part of um, that is being alcohol or drug free, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people that's how they define their recovery is around their the absence of of. Uh, substances and alcohol in their life. Um, with people who have um, symptoms of mental illness, sometimes they just don't go away. So how, how, do, how would somebody who had like a thought disorder or um, 
somebody who has um, a moon disorder, uh, how would they define that for themselves? Sure, and that's been something that we've been very interested in, and and more recently, we've begun asking people in the communities to tell us, you know, what does recovery mean to you? And in response to that question, um, and especially in relation to psychiatric symptoms, we see and we've found um, several characteristics or patterns that people talk about as being important in their recovery. Um, and and one of the big ones there is people oh, giving giving the idea of of acknowledging or coming to terms um, with psychiatric symptoms. And again, as you said, the idea that it's not it's not that there may be an absence of symptoms, but but learning about them, gaining self knowledge about the impact of of their illness um, is something that we hear as a as an important contributor to people's recovery processes, um, and acknowledging also, you know, how pains of the past may be influencing the present, the present as well. Um, and so there's kind of, you know, there people do talk about the importance of that form of of acknowledgement, coming to terms with it as as being really important in their in their day-to-day dealing with it. And, and that brings me to, to another key theme that we've found in terms of the meaning of recovery for people is a kind of deliberate attempt to focus on the present. And that's been something that we hear articulated as a kind of personal philosophy that emphasizes the now, what we've termed the now, um, and, and the idea of really taking things one day at a time and we see that that this is manifest then in you know in you know very day to day efforts to keep busy and to remain active in their communities as well. Um, so so that's something that you know it's it's an ongoing process of of management and coping that we hear a lot about. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how. Um how you know if you see someone who obviously is um, experiencing symptoms of mental illness or substance misuse, you know there's there's stigma associated with that behavior, and and sometimes that gets internalized as shame. So how how much um, how do people overcome like the, the shame of mental illness or the shame of their substance use disorder? I mean, I do think that that's one of the things about living within these. Um, community-based settings of shared experiences is that people people do talk about the importance of of being in close proximity and having access to others who really kind of get it and who have had similar experiences um, in in their own lives and are also engaging in these day-to-day efforts to manage and cope. Um, with symptoms and with um, and with substance use disorders, and so I think that that's such a key piece of what we're finding within these particular housing communities is really that element of you know, what, the importance of the community in helping to mitigate a lot of that stigma and shame um, by saying you know you, you know you understand what I've been through you've been there yourself. Um, um, 
uh, you've, you've been there yourself, and, and so I think that, uh, that that's been a key piece of it is that element of shared experience and, and common experience within the communities. Well, you know, I think that um, it's, it's amazing to see people kind of move beyond the illness. You know, I can remember um, when I first went to work um, in a dual disorder program, we would ask people to identify themselves, and they'd say, Hi, my name's Mary, and I, I'm uh, a paranoid schizophrenic. And, and they conceptualize themselves around their illness. And, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was so sad, you know, um, because, you know, whether you have paranoid schizophrenia or alcoholism, you're more than your disease. And it's really nice to begin to see people really kind of own their own identity, that's right, and 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 being you know, being seen as as the person first, and and someone who is living, and managing and coping with particular challenges. But I think that's one of the real strengths of of these communities is the ability to um, be seen in in full personhood. And we'll be right back after this commercial. If you have any questions, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary, and our guest today is Elizabeth Carpenter-Song, who is part of a multidisciplinary team of researchers at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and Howard University that are exploring the meanings and experiences of recovery processes among people with severe mental illness in Washington, D.C. And what we're really talking about today is just the whole notion that people with severe mental illness and with co-occurring disorders can and do recover 
and and are able to move beyond their illness. And um, the whole recovery process, Elizabeth, is um, in this housing recovery um, community. Is the process different in that community than it would be somebody living independently, do you think? You know, it's interesting, and I think that, that as we move the research forward, you know, it, it would be it would be very interesting for us to be able to to answer that by by going out and and spending time with people that are that are not living in in these types of communities. I think that would that would bring some of these um, patterns maybe into into bolder relief for us in terms of you know how exactly um, this type of community based living may be particularly helpful. Um, and, and really facilitate processes of recovery. At this point, I think we can, you know, we may have some good guesses, but but there, you know, we'd, we'd need to do some some future systematic work um, to really tease out what some of those differences may be. Um, but I think one of the one of the strong themes, of course, that's coming through this work is, you know, you know, as articulated by the residents of these communities. They absolutely give voice to the idea that you know um, this this housing structure and this type of communal living situation um, is is experienced as being extremely positive and and extremely important um, to facilitating their recovery. Um, is there anything specific that makes this different than another like a group home kind of? Supportive environment. You know, I think one of the big things is that it, um, is this idea that this is supported independent living, and and so residents within the communities are are very much independent in their day to day routines, and um, in most of of these recovery communities, people are living um, in in a in an apartment. Um, some of them are are more in, in row homes, but it's still they you know they've got their own room and 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 I think that that piece of it around independence is is a big part of it. While at the same time, they these communities are owned and operated by a mental health agency, and so the you know one thing that we do see as important is the service environment and that people. Um, you know the the recovery communities are are seen as kind of an extension of the services that are provided by the agency and and even as people are talking about their experience of living in these communities they can they're oftentimes their accounts kind of tack back and forth between um, what's happening in the recovery community and what's happening more broadly at the agency and so I think they feel as though there's a bridge to services um, but it's not something that is um, a continual presence on a on a day to day basis in terms of their living situation. So it's an interesting hybrid um, in terms of that service environment being an important feature of the contextual environment of of the recovery communities that I think is important um, in people's processes of recovery. You know, we talked earlier about this being a paradigm shift um, and how we conceptualize. Um, uh, people's ability to recover from psychiatric disabilities. And I'm just wondering how much of people's ability to recover is based on 
the staff's belief that they can recover. Mm, that's interesting. And again, that would be that would be something that I think we we um, would be very interested in in pursuing in future work um, with uh, within these communities and within these agencies to to understand certainly the time that we spend with um, case managers who are members of uh, uh, what, they, what they term the recovery team, so the case managers who are linked up to these recovery communities. I think that just anecdotally, we haven't looked at this systematically, but anecdotally, I think people are strongly oriented um, toward recovery um, toward recovery and toward providing recovery-oriented services. You know, um, I had an experience a long time ago of being in a partial hospital program and um, going in there as, as an addiction professional and kind of the, the, um, the environment was, well, these folks have severe and persistent mental illness and they can't sit in group and they can't tolerate um, long periods of um, discussion. And, and it, was, it was basically what they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And coming from um, an addiction experience, it was all about, well, what you can do, you know, like, these are the things you can do. And when we began to expect people to stay in groups and to participate, they began to do it. And um, I thought that was a very valuable lesson, that, you know, people will rise to our expectations, that if we don't expect them to do things, they really don't do it. But if we do expect them to do it, then I don't know whether that provides them a little... Um, momentum or a little hope or maybe just a good, um, you know, wake-up call that, you know, this is possible. That's right. And I think that that translates so well um, to what we're finding in in the communities as well. We have to remember that um, many of the residents who are living in, in, in these communities are among... Um, the most marginalized people within the United States. And so not only um, dealing with challenges of psychiatric disability and and substance use disorders, but often, as I said, the kind of daily onslaught of racial discrimination and economic insecurity, histories of homelessness and trauma, and it, I think it would be very easy for people to be written off as victims, um, but that's not what happens within these communities. Um, as you said, people are um, people are are expected to um, to live and to take care of 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 their of their apartments and to participate in the group activities. Um, within their communities, they're expected to be good neighbors to their fellow residents. And from everything that we've seen by spending a lot of time in these communities, that's exactly what happens. Um, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. you know, which, um, you know, I think that there's there's so much that can be accomplished through hope and affirmation that, um, you know, I think, in many respects, um, we kind of we kind of miss the mark when we are focusing on, um, you know, there, there can be positive consequences for your behavior as well as negative consequences, and um, it just seems to me that people learn 
more often than not through positive reinforcements. And I think it also, I mean, the the types of, um, you know, really under um, providing a forum for the type of knowledge that is gained through lived experience is something that then becomes um, such a key component within these communities. Again, that, that idea of shared experience and within the social environment of these communities, the idea of being able to draw upon the knowledge of fellow residents, the ability to um, to have people who are, um, you know, at at perhaps different um, different stages or have different experiences of their recovery process, to to educate and and provide um, their own experience to to others in the community is is a really key part of this as well. That this is something that is not only about um, professional services and what can be provided by a case manager or a psychiatrist or or a therapist, but is really something um, that is strongly rooted in in knowledge amongst peers as well. Which I think is so important because I know that some of, I mean, I guess throughout my career I've learned more from the people that I've worked with than I've learned from from books or, or other types of experiences that the, that whether it's it's working with people with addictive disorders or co-occurring disorders, they have so much to teach us, you know, and um, and and they have so much to teach each other, mm-hmm. you know, that I think sometimes that gets lost. The the uh, the person's perspective gets lost. That for some people, it's you know the fact that um, they can slip into psychosis. It's okay with them, you know, if if they can manage it. You know, they they don't always want to be a hundred percent symptom free, or somebody who has um, a mood disorder, um, you know, may not always want to give up that hypomania. You know, but then how do you manage that and keep your life together? You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's really important. Um, if people want to learn more about the research, where would they go to? Well, they can. Um, so we are part of a collaboration um, between uh, the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and and Howard University, and um, and for now they can they can find a little bit more about us on um, the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center website. Do you know what that is offhand? I don't know offhand. I should have that on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I'm sure if you Google the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center, you'll find it. Yes, and also you can um, you can also have um, point point people also to the, the uh, some work that's being done. So the principal investigator for the collaboration between the two institutions is Dr. Rob Whitley, and um, Dr. Whitley um, is a professor here at Dartmouth as well as at uh, McGill University in Montreal, and and he's been very interested more recently in um, in um, doing some more video-based work and really um, disseminating the work that we're doing um, in this research um, 
to a broader audience. And so I would also encourage folks to, uh, you, know, you can look up Dr. Rob Whitley as well um, to, to find some more of, of those resources. I apologize for not having those on hand. That's okay. Um, we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our guest is Elizabeth Carpenter Song, who is a medical and psychological anthropologist, and she is currently working on a number of projects in the Washington, D.C. area with the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and Howard University. And um, we were talking earlier about the communities and how important communities are to people um, in their recovery. I know here at Westbridge we've also um, really under have learned, um, and I guess we've always understood, the importance of family to people's recovery. And, you know, there, there's a notion that when people have um, severe mental illness that they get disenfranchised from their family. And I think some of the work that was done by uh, Kim Muser at Dartmouth says that people that have severe and persistent mental illness often have more contact with their family than their um, their healthier siblings. And so I think that's kind of a myth, too, that um, that these families are just off to the side. We have our best outcomes when our families are fully engaged and involved and, and we're all working together um, as a team. And I'm wondering what your experience has been with that, Elizabeth. Sure. The, I think the, the family piece of, of all of this is something that I, I'm d- deeply, deeply interested in and... Um, and is and is actually the focus of some um, some research that we're just getting off the ground now in Washington D.C. and really under trying to understand um, family life in the context of mental illness and recovery, and in particular amongst African American families. and And we've certainly found through um, some past research the uh, that that points very strongly to um, to the the the, the contact um, with families and particularly um, amongst amongst African American families 
having a, a lot of contact um, and 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 the and the importance of of uh, various family members' views and and perspectives on um, on illness and on recovery and on the day to day lives of of people. And so we've been very interested um, to understand how family life may facilitate recovery and shape illness and disability experiences, and also to document what some of the key challenges are that are facing families in these communities too. And so with this with this new research again that's being conducted in the context of, of our collaboration with Howard University, um, we are we are just starting a, an anthropological and uh, ethnographic based study with a small cohort of we're hoping five families will participate um, in this research, and we'll be following their experiences over the course of a year. And we're and we're recruiting um, parents uh, who are living with severe mental illness to participate in this study. And these are um, these are people who are raising um, who are raising dependent children. And so we're very very interested in understanding um, issues around parenting in relation to both illness experiences as well as recovery and rehabilitation. It's really interesting um, to uh, to think about what 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 you will find. I, I think that. Um, Sometimes isn't mental illness how we perceive mental illness? That's cultural as well, because there are some cultures where, like someone who has schizophrenia, would just be absorbed into the to the everyday pattern of of life, and and you wouldn't even think about sending them somewhere. That's right, and and that's one of the the motivations um, for 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 doing work in in Washington D.C. and with African American populations. Is to document um, explanations and understandings of, um, of of mental illness within within African American communities, and um, as as you said, to, to understand sort of um, how how these types of experiences are being interpreted um, within within diverse communities. Um, and there are certain parts of the world where. Um, Mental illness isn't really, I mean, it's accepted more than it's um, considered uh, odd, right? I mean, there, there are certain cultures where you just get absorbed into the, into the culture. That's right, and, and, even, and, and we don't even have to go so far afield even. Um, what we found in, in previous research with, um, with people from diverse backgrounds, so from... Um, Anglo or Euro-American backgrounds, African-American backgrounds, and Latino backgrounds, we have found differences in, in previous studies around the level of inclusion of, of people with mental illness within their families and within their communities. And what we've found is that people from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds um, tended to be much, much more included um, within their families. And, and there was um, a, an expectation that that people would participate meaningfully in their families and their communities, and much less of an emphasis 
on the person's illness and the potential problems that may come of that. The, going back to what we were saying earlier about expectations and, and raising expectations, I think that that um, was similarly happening within a lot of these families that, you know, you were just part of the gang. You were part of part of the, the, the broader community. Um, and, and there may be challenges and there may be um, some difficulties, but there wasn't an emphasis so much on potential limitations of of living with a mental illness. And it seems like there were more accommodations within the family as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, in, in looking forward, I mean, do you see um, our mental health system becoming more recovery-friendly and recovery-oriented? I certainly hope so, um, and and I think that you know in in working with with different um, with different providers you know across the country and and what we see in in our work, I mean things things seem to be moving in that direction. I think all of us are hopeful um, that that will be that that will be the case. Um, that you know the the reality that we see on on a day to day basis will really become a part of the clinical culture um, as well and the clinical viewpoint around these types of disorders as well. Well, this is all very exciting, and I think that um, it's very hopeful. And um, I I guess this is just kind of a statement on where we are. I I just hope that that as we move forward toward a recovery-oriented system, that this isn't as a result of cost savings, so that as opposed to um, you know, we'll develop peer-run groups and peer-run facilities as a way to cut costs. So you know what I mean? I, I hope we can find a way to do this that's meaningful and um, provides people with the, with the support that they need to, to really move forward in their recovery. Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head to, to do this in a, in a meaningful and thoughtful way. Yeah. You know, um, I guess the other thing, I mean, coming from a lot of my work having been in the addiction world is that just because someone has been um, a consumer of services of substance abuse treatment doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best person to provide support to someone else. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that's the same true with people with psychiatric disabilities is that you know, it, regardless, it takes a special person to be able to trans, translate their own experience in a way that's meaningful to someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the last couple minutes that we have, what would you like folks to, um, to really take home from, from this hour? Well, I think first and foremost to kind of come full circle is just, you know the the really um, understanding and and realizing this tremendous uh, shift in in how we understand um, experiences of psychiatric disability and substance use disorders that you know we're we're moving much more toward um, toward a recovery based focus. Um, that is that is very hopeful, I think, for for people. Another key piece of that is that 
recovery, um, when we think about recovery, and I think the work that we're doing um, points to the importance of a very holistic and inclusive understanding of recovery. And this is something that's both a, you know, personal, in, personal in nature as well as deeply embedded in um, the social context of, of people as well. And it's something that when we talk about recovery too, it's, it's, it's about more than the reduction or the mitigation of psychiatric symptoms, but it really is about pursuing a meaningful life and having opportunities um, to engage meaningfully in the things that people want to in, in, their, in their day-to-day lives. And this is something that, um, you know, is, again, focused on mental health, addictions, as well as things um, you know, trying to trying to get people back on their feet in terms of economic uh, security, um, housing security, and a feeling of inclusiveness um, in the broader community. Thank you so much for um, spending this hour with us. And um, if people want to contact you, they can reach you at at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. They can. Okay. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Have a great week. Thank you too. It's been a pleasure. Have a great week, everyone, and happy Halloween. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week.